Hello, everybody. What you're about to hear is part one of a two-part series about the census. On November 30th, the Supreme Court will hear the case Trump versus New York. The key question at proceeding will be whether or not the United States will count illegal immigrants towards apportionment of representation in the U.S. House of Representatives. Given the importance of that decision, we thought it prudent to discuss the census and how it applies to representative government as well as divvy up billions of dollars of federal funds. We were joined by an excellent guest, Professor Margot Anderson from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee. We now cut to my interview with her, where the professor is telling us about the history of the Census Bureau and the reasons for its founding. We hope you enjoy. The census was mandated in the 1787 Constitution. We took the first one in 1790, three years later. But the intention was to try to figure out how to allocate political representation in the House of Representatives and the Electoral College, and originally also tax obligations among the states that were forming the United States. Even then, uh, the country was very diverse. Um, There were big states and small states, states with slavery, states without, mercantile, agricultural. And so the framers needed a mechanism that would fairly allocate representation, as I said, particularly in the House among the states. And the census was their solution. Okay. And then as I understand it, before the Census Bureau was founded, the count was done by uh, federal marshals. Is that correct? Well, the census... Bureau, as we know it today, was not created until 1902. Before that, Congress created a temporary census office every decade. They wrote a, a statute de novo every decade. And the actual administration sort of wandered around the federal government from the Secretary of States bailiwick to the Interior Department. It finally landed in 1902, first in the Interior Department and then in the Department of Commerce and Labor, and finally the Department of Commerce, which is where it's been since about 1912. The temporary office in the early years was a very modest operation, just a clerk and a few assistants to the clerks uh, in Washington. And the what we would call today the field force, the people who go out and count house to house were under the authority of the United States Marshals, who were really the only federal officials arrayed around the country. So the United States Marshal was instructed to appoint assistants and gave them a geographic territory and said, here, go out and count. It wasn't until 1830 that they even printed questionnaires and sent them out from Washington. Before that, it was, they, you could use any kind of piece of paper. Um, it was a very informal operation in the early years. Gotcha, gotcha. Well, let's fast forward to today. And so, as I understand it today, you know, obviously this is a census year 2020. And, uh, you know, I've seen some of these workers, uh, field workers out there in my apartment building uh, asking around. But uh, as I understand it, there's some start dates, there's some end dates, and then eventually the results have to be tabulated and presented to the president. So can you walk us through how today's census process works? Okay, so the Title 13, which is the name of the statute that governs the census now, mandates that on April 1st of the year zero, we take a complete enumeration, an actual enumeration of the population. That statute also says that nine months later, in other words, by the end of December of the year zero, the Census Bureau to the Commerce Department to the President reports the results of the count to the House of Representatives, 
that then is responsible for sending it on to the states to reapportion the seats in Congress. There are later deadlines in that statute about redistricting data, which come out usually a year after the account, and then the you know plethora of information that pours out of the Census Bureau comes out after that. Now, those deadlines were put in place really in the last you know, 50, 80 years. They've changed a little bit at various times. This year, because of the pandemic, they've caused a great deal of difficulty because the, the what they call the field enumeration phase of the census, which was slated to go run basically from May till about August, had to be postponed. The unobtrusive phase, which was the internet response or the mail response or a phone response sort of went ahead as it normally would have in late March and later. But the Census Bureau always has to send people out to find out why they didn't get an answer from a particular address. They have special operations for what they call hard to count or difficult to enumerate population. And those are the phases that got postponed by the pandemic. Well, tell me about some of those workers. You know, I saw some of the field workers out in my apartment building, knocking on buildings with their masks, running around. So who are they? Are they agents? Are they contract workers? Who are the field workers? The Census Bureau creates field offices for the decennial and then recruits temporary workers for a couple of months, sometimes a couple of weeks, every 10 years. And they're, you know, you have to you know, get tested and trained and fingerprinted and background checked and all of that stuff and put on the payroll and work for the particular phase. Usually they try to use people from the local area as much as possible because they know the geography of the area. And it ranges from a couple hundred thousand to, you know, some decades it was much higher. In other words, we used to only do this with human labor We've actually employed fewer and fewer enumerators in the last 40, 50 years as we've mechanized, if you will, the process. Well, one of the important things with the census is knowing who to count and who not to count. And so as I understand it, not everybody that just happens to be in the country will be counted in this. So can you define for us who is included in the census count versus who is not? Okay. First of all, the census counts people at addresses. So they're sort of operational plan is to build this national map called the Tiger Map, which is a map of uh, the entire country with every residential address that they can identify on it. And then they create a master address file that maps to that map. And their job is to hit every single one of those addresses. Now, once they reach an address, say, by the postcard or the mail form, they give the homeowner or the resident an instruction about who should be included or excluded. And by and large, it's everybody. There are some small categories of people like diplomats or foreign tourists who are not excluded, but it's a very expansive list. And of course, we also count like the overseas military and federal employees overseas, and there are separate procedures for that. So that's how it's done. And the the tricky part is that some people get counted twice. Some people don't or get missed. We, we miss addresses. And that's all the really complicated stuff that 
has to be done both in the field and then in what they call the post-processing phase, which is what we're in now, trying to make sure that it, it all worked out, if you will. And participation is mandatory. I was reading that there's a fine if you refuse to participate. Is that correct? Yeah. Starting in 1790, Congress asked themselves, you know, do we, is this required? Do you have to, does a householder, in other words, somebody at each residential address have to do this? And the answer they said in 1790 is yes. And every time Congress has looked at that question for the last 230 years, they've said, "Mm -hmm, yep, it's mandatory. Now, In practice, this is a voluntary operation because the Census Bureau does not want to get into the enforcement game. So it's more of a a nudge rather than a legal requirement. There have been lawsuits and litigation over the years over people who took a principal position and said that they wouldn't fill it out. Those individuals have lost in the courts. You know, one of the interesting things that uh, I came across when I was doing my research for this episode, Professor, was that, you know, the census takes time to do the counting. It takes time to calculate the results. And so, you know, sometimes after, uh, you know, census workers go through or calls have been made, you know, people are born, people die, people move. And so how does the census avoid miscounting, you know, for those types of situations? Well, they do the best they can, first of all. And if you look carefully at the instructions, they ask you to report who was at the particular address as of April 1st, 2020. So that means that if somebody, if a baby is born March 31st, 2020, they're in the census. But if somebody dies on March 31st, 2020, they're not. Clearly, there's a lot of slippage. And the work that they do now and and whatever, is to capture people because Americans move around a great deal. And this is one of the difficulties in this pandemic, particularly for groups like college students who were sent home precisely at the point that the census enumeration was, you know, was supposed to take place. So they do the best they can, and they'll tell you how many people they thought they either counted twice, right? Somebody a college student who was reported in their dorm, but also was reported at their home address because that's where they were on April 10th when mom and dad filled out the form, and as well as people who were missed, in other words, somebody who slipped through the cracks altogether. So they do a, a series of what they call evaluation studies. Some of them are very intensive where, you know, like focus groups and so forth. Others are additional surveys, what they call the post-enumeration survey, goes back and collects a sample of households and then matches that to the census count to see where, you know, because they should be the same and to see where the difficulties are. You know, one of the most fascinating things about this to me, uh, the, the history of the census, was the counting methodologies. We hope you're enjoying our conversation with Professor Margot Anderson. We'll pick up where we left off in the next episode when I ask the professor about the history of counting methodologies used to the census, the requirement of confidentiality, and the formula used to apportion representation in the U.S. House of Representatives. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. Have a great day, everybody. (laughs) Thank you.